Have you ever sat in your home and just looked around and wondered what went through someone's mind that they created the things that are sitting there around you? What happened in their brain that they thought, man, I should invent this thing? Uh, it's something that just plagues my mind a lot. I sit around and wonder these things. Uh, my wife will attest to that. I am very curious about the origins of what not and uh, howevers and all those good things in between. And, and so I will go and I will look and I will figure it out because if you really stop and think about it, there's very little in our everyday lives that someone didn't invent. Like even when we get out and we look at our trees and look at our things, yes, God made trees, but there have been so many scientists that have come along and manipulated and manufactured and done those things. Uh, like it's crazy. Like originally cabbages were only this big and people kept messing with them until they got them this big. And now we can have coleslaw and it's fantastic. It's good stuff. All right. But I get, I get this in my brain. And, but here's the beautiful thing is that we actually, we live in the information age. You know, we have all of those answers or at least the most probable answers at our fingertips. All I got to do is say, hey, Google, and then ask the question. You're like, maybe, hey, hey, Google, why are there holes in Lifesavers candy? Now, the urban legend is that the guy that invented them had a child that choked on a piece of candy and died, and so he made a candy with a hole in it so that you wouldn't choke. Just so you know, if you get a Lifesaver stuck in your throat, the hole doesn't do a whole lot of, of work there. Uh, in fact, I looked this up, Google, Google, why are there holes in Lifesavers? And I found out that in 1912, Clarence Crane uh, needed a summer candy that wouldn't melt like chocolate because there wasn't a lot of air conditioning or refrigeration at the time. So he needed something that wouldn't melt. And so he decided to make a peppermint and he had a buddy that owned a pharmacy that said, hey, you can use my pill machine to make those. And the pill machine would make a disc and then cut a hole out of the middle. And that's why they have a hole, because it was the machine that he found he could use for free. That, that's why lifesavers have holes in them. Uh, but then it looked like a lifesaver, so he used that. Uh, or maybe, hey, Google, why were Band-Aids invented? We have had needed this a lot at our house recently. Um, our kids have been falling and getting hurt or having siblings throw things at them and them getting hurt or whatever. So it was curious what's going on. And this is what I found out. At the turn of the century, uh, around 1920, a man by the name Earl Dixon had a very clumsy wife. This is legitimately, if you go look up on the Wikipedia for Band-Aids, this is what happened. His wife was constantly cutting and burning herself and he was tired of paying the medical bills. So he got some cotton and put it on some tape and said, here, next time that happens, just do this. He just also happened to work for Johnson & Johnson. And so one day when his wife came in and saw that, Johnson & Johnson said, ooh, that's a good idea. Here's the coolest thing I found out in doing that, though. Used to, Band-Aids would be on a long roll. And you, would have to, you could cut whatever size Band-Aid you wanted. Man, that seems like an awesome thing. I don't know why they stopped that. People were like, I don't got scissors. Or maybe they were like, I'm bleeding. I can't handle a scissor. Uh, who knows? But that's, that's what it was. Uh, or finally, uh, hey, hey, Google, why were T-shirts invented? I thought this one would be a fun story. Uh, and instead of a, a text, send me this, this image. Show, show this image real quick. Uh, I don't know. You probably can't see this. But it's an ad from 1904. And basically what this ad says is it's the bachelor undershirt. No safety pins, no needles, no thread, no buttons. T-shirts were invented because the men of the late 18th century or 19th century and the early uh, 1900s didn't know how to sew a button back on. 
Do, do, do you hear what I'm saying? The most common outerwear in the world was invented because of laziness. Thank you, thank you, men of 1904, for not wanting to learn how to do that. I appreciate it because I wear a t-shirt every day. I actually wear it as an undergarment most of the time, which is because I'm really an 85-year-old man. Um, but here's the thing that I've noticed. Here's the thing I've noticed. Everything that I've ever looked up, things have been invented because there was a problem. There was something that came in, something that was an issue, something that had to be overcome, and someone in their wisdom and in their epiphany and in their genius said, oh, what if we did this instead? And that's going to get us right into where we're going today. See, we're in this series right now called Jumpstart. We're talking about five catalysts that will grow your faith. Um, this is, comes from a book by, uh, by a guy named Anley Stanley, who is a pastor down in, in Georgia. And Chris has been doing most of this series. Uh, today, Chris is not here. He's actually preaching this same series up in Virginia this weekend at uh, Christ Fellowship in Portsmouth uh, with one of his buddies. And it's really exciting that he gets to go and do that and that I get to share with you um, but he's already looked at a couple different things. First, he looked at uh, practical teaching, the idea that we need to be putting ourselves in a place that we can hear the word, putting ourselves in a place that we can learn more about who God is, and then not just be there for that, but then take that information and actually put it into practice. Let the rubber meet the road. And then Chris talked about pivotal relationships, and how there are some people that come into our lives that just challenge us, that just push us, that just want us to be better connected with God. And that if we have those relationships that we need to cultivate them and we need to make sure that those stay strong so that those people can continue to pour into us. And if we don't have those relationships, that we should be seeking them out. Because those relationships will make us who we want to be. And then finally last week, Chris talked about personal ministry. And he said that if, if you're really going to grow in your faith, you've got to get out there and do the work. And we heard from Ed, uh, who was down in the Dominican Republic as a missionary, and his story of how God came in and worked in his life and his pivotal relationships and his practical, uh, whatever that word was, I lost it. Uh, anyway, practical teaching led him to being a missionary in the Dominican Republic. Um, if you hadn't been here for those messages, I highly recommend you check them out on uh, the podcast, jointheventure.com slash podcast. But today, today we're going to push forward. We're going to continue in this. And the word that we're going to use, what we're going to call today's is problematic circumstances. Problematic circumstances. Uh, you know, those, those moments of, of setback, the moments of difficulty, the moments of, of struggle and pain and strife that we have all experienced. Those moments of, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And those of us that have gotten through and are here on this other side, if we're honest with ourselves, we look back at our lives and we're like, I didn't like it right then but I wouldn't change it now because I wouldn't be who I am if that hadn't happened. And so today we're going to look at problematic circumstances because I believe that there is an undeniable relationship between them and our faith in God. 
James, the, the brother of Jesus. James, who grew up watching his brother go and, and do all of these crazy things. James, who was standing there at the foot of the cross as his brother died. James, who was there with Joseph of Arimathea, wrapped Jesus up and put him in the tomb. James, who saw his brother resurrected. In the beginning of his letter, he writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, it's no accident that the people who face overwhelming problematic circumstances are the same ones that have faith that changes and grows. It's a direct relationship because trials that test your faith produce perseverance. Now, now don't get me wrong. This isn't me saying we need to go out and we need to seek out trials. You know, that's not something we're built for. We're not built to go and seek out pain. We're not built to go and find problematic circumstances and find things that are going to hurt us and things that are going to bring us down. That's just not the way people are designed. That's not what we want to do. We're not going to run around and seek trials of various kinds. But we don't have to, do we? They come and they find us. They come and they seek us out. But as we listen today, I hope that we can understand that if we allow God, if we give him the room to move, if we give him the space for our trust, he is able to leverage those problematic circumstances to cause our faith to grow. Every week at Venture, we like to look to the Bible for, the, uh, for God's most important truths. And today we're going to be in the book of John. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible over here in the corner, there's some on a stand. Those are completely free. Uh, you can have it not just now, but take it home with you if you don't have a good readable version of the Bible because we think it's important for everyone to have access to that. And so we give those Bibles away for free every week. So even if you want to grab one on your way out, uh, if you know somebody that needs one, just grab one, give it to them. It'll be awesome. Um, otherwise, you can look at it on your phone or we're going to have all the scripture up on the screen behind me as well. And so we're going to be in John chapter 11. John is one of the first four books of the New Testament, one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus. And John takes a little bit of a different approach as he talks about uh, Jesus' emotion and love more than anything else. But he still has some powerful stories. And for those of you that know the Bible a little bit and you understand John 11 and you know what's going on in that, you're like, oh, I know, you know the story ends, we're good. I want you to take a step back. And I want you to walk through the story with me so that you can feel the emotion of what's going on. Because this week I have been wrestling with this story and I, I found that there is more going on here than I have ever let myself see before I looked at it through the lens that I'm looking at it today. And it may change a little bit of your perspective. Uh, if you've never heard this story, then man, you're in for a ride. So John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. See, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were all what we would call close friends 
with Jesus. They were all good friends of Jesus. They weren't just randos that he ran into one day. These were people that Jesus knew. These were people that Jesus had spent time with. Like Mary and Martha don't even feel like they need to mention Lazarus' name as they write this letter to Jesus to say their brother's sick. They just say, the one you love. Like that's impressive. You know, not only did they know that Jesus loved Lazarus, but they knew that Jesus knew that they, what he was talking about when they said, hey, the one you love sick. You know, Jesus didn't go, oh man, it must be my brother or Mary or, you know, thumb blah, blah, blah. He said, no, that's Lazarus, obviously. So these were people that he knew what was going on. And I think this is an important distinction because the fact that this was Jesus's friend. This was the one he loved. You know, this was, this was his fridge friend. You know what a fridge friend is? That's the one that can come over to your house and just open your fridge and go in and grab whatever they want and it's not awkward and it's not weird. Like this is the kind of relationship that Jesus had with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He could just go over to their place and just grab whatever he wanted and they'd just be like, oh, that's cool, it's Jesus. It's no problem. He can do that. He's like family anyway. And they say, Lazarus is sick. The next verse. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, this is the first thing that took me aback this week. It is for God's glory. It kind of creates a new category in our brains for glory, doesn't it? Sickness can be for glory. Sickness can be for glory. That, that's not the kind of glory I want. I want the glory where I'm the hero of the story. I want the glory of winning that new uh, Lego TV show that came on Fox. You guys have all seen that? I want to go win that. I want to be like, yeah, I'm the Lego master. And it'll be great. It'll be awesome. I want that kind of glory. I want the glory of teaching my kids to be upright, beautiful people that are kind and compassionate and loving so that people can come and tell me, Patrick, your kids are so kind, compassionate, and loving. I'll be like, yes. Yes, they are. And then I'll be honest and tell them that it's because my wife is so great and I had nothing to do with it. But this is the glory that, that Jesus says. He says he is sick for God's glory. Because God allows problematic circumstances to happen for his glory. Next verse. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? He just did exactly what you would not expect a loving fridge friend to do. He heard that his buddy was sick and he knew that he had the ability to heal him and he said, oh, he's sick? Cool. Everybody starts jumping up. All right, let's go, Jesus, we're gonna go. He's like, no, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down. And he sat there for two days doing nothing. You know, people ask me why I believe the Bible is true sometimes. Why I think this whole thing is real. And it's stories like this that make me really believe that the Bible is real. Because this is completely wrong. 
This is not something that you would expect someone that is loving and kind to do. This is the opposite of what you want to write down. If you're writing a nonfiction book, you're like, all right, we need, we need this guy to be uh, the best thing ever so that everyone will want to follow him, everyone will want to be like him, everyone will want to, to love him. You don't write that he finds out that one of his best friends is sick and he goes, all right, cool, and then does nothing for two days. It just doesn't make any sense. Here, Mary and Martha have sent an urgent message to Jesus, not just about someone is sick, but Lazarus, the one who Jesus loves, is sick. And Jesus gets the message. He says, cool. He just sits there for two days doing nothing. We've been there before, right? There's been something in our lives that we have just begged and pleaded God for. That we've actually said, man, I'm just going to go ahead and get down on my knees in tears and beg God please let this happen or please don't let that happen or please change why this is happening. And we've asked him and we've pleaded with him and we've begged him and nothing. We feel like that, that God is just not showing up, that he's either ignoring us or that he just doesn't care. Can you imagine what Mary and Martha were thinking right then? For those, for those couple of days. They sent the message off. They said, hey, Jesus, our brother is sick. We know that you can, you can do something about it. The one you love is sick. Come on back. And they trusted Jesus. They loved Jesus. They knew Jesus. This was their buddy. And so for two days, they would take turns. One of them sitting at the side of Lazarus' bed, watching their brother get sicker and sicker and sicker. While the other one sat out there at the side of the road going, where's Jesus? Hey, Jesus, where are you? Has anybody seen Jesus? Every traveler that walked by coming from the direction that Jesus was in. Hey, have you seen Jesus? Is he headed this way? Have you seen any of his disciples? Do you know what's going on? Have you seen him? They know that Jesus got the message because the messenger has come back and said, hey, I delivered your message. And they're waiting. And nothing is happening. So these two days pass, and finally Jesus, uh, next verse, in verse 7, he says to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, Judea is the area that the city of Bethany is in. So the town of Bethany is in Judea. That's where Lazarus and his sisters live. Uh, and this is good. Jesus is finally going to go and visit his friends. And now the disciples that were all ready to go before that he had to call back down are, are like, wait, 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 hold up. One thing, Jesus. Uh, verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Now, I'm sure these guys were really worried about Jesus and about his safety. You know, this was their teacher. This was their, their Messiah. They knew that he was, you know, important, and so they wanted to take care of him. Um, and they, but I feel like there's a little bit of them that was like, if people are trying to stone Jesus, and I'm following Jesus, then vicariously, people are also trying to stone me. Let's not go to Judea. And so they do what we do sometimes, and they reminded Jesus about the situation. They said, well, now, Jesus, remember, they're, they're trying to kill you over there. Probably not the best idea. 
You know, we, we do that a lot of times. You know, something's going on. It's like, but, but Jesus, remember, I, I told you that I wouldn't do that anymore if you would just make this other thing happen. You know, remember this situation. God knows what's going on. Uh, I wonder if they tried to remind Jesus of other things. You know, they're sitting there going, all right, so remember the other day we were, we were there and a guy came and said his servant was sick? You know, he said his servant was sick, and you're like, all right, cool, let's go see the servant. And they were like, oh, no, you, you can just, you're, you're important. I'm over people, and you can just tell me the servant is better, and it'll be better, and it'll be fine. And you were able to heal him from whatever, never saw him, never went close to him. We don't even know where that servant was, and you healed him. Why don't we do that this time? That would be great. Let's, let's just send, send those waves over there, and we'll just hold on, and we'll stay here where it's safe and not go over there where they want to, to kill us. Can't you just do that now too? It'll be, it'll be good. And, and Jesus answers this very cryptic answer that is a whole different lesson that I'm just gonna kind of gloss over today. You can check those verses out, verses nine and 10. Um, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I'm not really sure what Jesus was saying there without a bunch of Bible study. But uh, if you can figure it out, let me know. But then he says this, verse uh, 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. They said, oh, he's asleep. That's good. When you're sick and you get some rest, that's a good thing. You know, the old saying, you know, starve a fever, sleep through every other terminal illness. Like, that's just how it works. We got to just let him sleep and, because typically if people go to sleep, they wake up and they get, feel a little bit better. And so the disciples are like, see, we don't need to go. It's good. So Jesus, seeing that they don't understand this, goes to verse 14. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Wait a second. He's dead? Like, he's not alive anymore? And you still want to go to Judea where they might kill us? Why didn't we just go before? If we're going to go, why didn't we go while he was still alive? You know, these people that you love, these people that you cherish, these people that have sat and waited for two days, and now you're telling us he's dead? And this is where it gets real. First part of verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake. What, 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 about, what about for Lazarus' sake? What, what about for Martha's sake? What about for Mary's sake? Jesus is saying, I'm glad that Lazarus died. I am glad that these women who have come and poured perfume on my feet and washed them with their hair are sitting there in tears, brokenhearted right now, disappointed in me. I'm glad for your sake. I'm glad that the people that don't believe in me that are around them have come and told them, see, we told you that he wasn't really the Messiah. We told you that he really wasn't gonna come. We told you that your brother was sick and you needed to accept it. We told you all of these things. Jesus said, I'm glad that they had to deal with that ridicule. I am glad that they are disappointed in me. Because the lesson that I'm about to teach you is that important. 
Because the lesson that I'm about to teach you is important enough for me to be willing to sacrifice the comfort of people that I love. The lesson that I'm about to teach you is so big that I will break their hearts. And I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake so that you may believe. So that you may believe. And he says, well, let us go to him. So why wasn't Jesus, why was Jesus glad he wasn't there? It's because he wanted us to believe. Wait a second. Does that mean if you put pain and suffering and belief on a balance scale, that belief is going to be the heavier thing every single time? Yeah. Does that mean that, that Jesus believes that belief is more important than any problematic circumstance that can come into our life? Yeah. Does that mean that Jesus believes that no matter what darkness you're sitting in right now, faith and trust in him is more important than whatever that is? Yeah, I think it does. Because Jesus is telling us that he is willing to sacrifice our comfort and the comfort of the ones that he loves to give our faith the opportunity to grow. He did all of this. He, he allowed this. He allowed this to happen to people that he knew personally. He allowed this to happen to the people that he's been in their house and he's hung out with them so that our faith can get bigger, so that our faith can grow. You know, in, in our world, we hear all of the time, I, I don't know if I can believe in a God that would allow, and you can fill in the blank, you know, would allow kids to starve or babies to kill, be killed or this to happen or that to happen or this social injustice or that social injustice or this war or that war. And they say, I don't know if I believe in a God that would allow that to happen. And after reading through this story this week, it makes me wonder what you're believing in if you say that. Because God doesn't stop the problematic circumstances of life. He doesn't take them away from us. And I believe that this, this, this moment is too dramatic. This moment is too desperate. It's too severe to have been made up. You don't write this down if it's not a true story. Even though it stands in opposition to what we want to believe about God. Because this is how important it was for Jesus that his disciples had rock solid, bone deep faith in him. Let's continue on. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them on the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Now, the first thing that's here that you need to see is that four days. The fact that he had been in the tomb for four days, the reason why Jesus waited to head that direction is because the people that did believe in a bodily resurrection 
in the first century believed that after three days it was impossible. That, sure, you could be resurrected up to three days, but after three days your spirit is gone, you're disconnected, it's impossible, you can't do it. So Jesus waited till the fourth day to make sure everybody knew that what they thought was impossible wasn't. But the other thing to notice here is the faith of Martha and the heartache of Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, then I know everything would have been okay. If you had just come, she doesn't know that Jesus spent two days just twiddling his thumbs. But she knows if he had been there, that things would be different. And then she says, but I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. She knew what Jesus was capable of before. She knows what Jesus is capable of now. She's seen Jesus heal other people. Uh, she's seen Jesus heal people that weren't his friends, people that he just met on the street. And she says, but I know that even now. She stands up before the man. and She shows that bold faith. And so Jesus, in verse 23, responds to her, says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, if you think that Jesus may have just been a good prophet or may have just been a good teacher, may have just been a, a good human guy that went around and said nice things to help people love each other, uh, this kind of statement when he makes this, it kind of throws all that back in your face and says, no, uh, either he was crazy or he was God. There, there's not much of a middle ground when you say, I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me, then you'll never die. Unless you can make that happen, saying that makes you sound crazy. But I don't believe that Jesus was crazy. And he goes on to prove that here in just a second. Because here's what the whole thing about is about. He says, I want you to trust me. I want you to know me and I want you to trust me. It's uncomfortable for us, but this is how God wants our faith to be. He wants it to be strong. He wants it to be mighty. And so he asked her, do you believe this? And this is what Martha says. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. She says, I believe that about you, even though you let my brother die. Even though you could have totally saved him, but you let my brother die. Can you feel the emotion that is going on right here in this place? Can you feel the, the disappointment and sadness that she is holding back as she stands before the king of kings? And held on to that one little spark of hope. Through this problematic circumstance, through this pain, right in the middle of this desperation, her faith was being stretched. Her faith was being grown. And if we skip down a couple of verses after some conversation, there's the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. 
Jesus didn't rush off to go perform the miracle. He didn't say, no, no, it's okay. I mean, he's going to be resurrected right now. We're going to go fix this. We're going to fix this. No, Jesus looked into the heart of this woman. This woman that he has spent time with. This woman that he loves. And he felt her pain. And he felt her disappointment. And he felt her heartache. And it moved him to tears. He mourned with her. He sat with her and he accepted that guilt and accepted that shame and accepted that pain for the problematic circumstance that he allowed. And then he says, now go open up the tomb. And the people are like, nah, man, it's been four days. That boy is stinky. We don't want to do that. He said, no, open up the tomb. And because Jesus is who Jesus is, the people did it. And Jesus stood in front of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. That's it. Lazarus, come out. And the miracle happens. And where death and pain and suffering was, life and love and joy is replaced. Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And all the people that were there, all the ones that had come to gloat, all the ones that had come to commiserate, all the ones that had come to just be a shoulder to cry on, were standing around and they saw this happen. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. In this instant, Jesus didn't just leverage a problematic circumstance. He, he created it. He allowed it. But the people that were a part of it trusted him in the bad. And because of that, their faith grew. And because of the miracle that happens at the end of this problematic circumstance, people that were around on the outside, on the outskirts saw this, and their faith began. But think back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples as they were the ones that were really affected in this. How much more did their faith grow in seeing that Jesus knows exactly what is going on, exactly what it's all about. You see, God is honored by our faith and our trust in him. That is what he's looking for. That is what he wants. And he will leverage the circumstances of your life to help your faith to grow. And sometimes these are the same circumstances, though, that turn people away from faith. Sometimes these are the same circumstances that we get into and we go, no, 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 I'm done. I'm out. I don't, I don't believe it anymore. And what's the difference? What's, what's the catalyst that ch- makes that change happen? What's, what's the difference between someone who was crushed and someone who has grown? Well, I think the difference is the people that you're surrounding yourself with. The people that are around you. Because we've all heard these stories. We, we've experienced these stories in our own lives of people that have run away from God. Because of pain, because of death, because of diagnosis, because of a trip to a third world country where they saw how those people were living. 
but the difference between someone who leans into God and the someone who leans and runs away from God is us. It's the church. It's the people around them that are saying, no, look back to God. Trust in him. Help me frame your situation in a frame of faith so that you can see that, yes, this is bad. Yes, this hurts. Yes, this is terrible. But God is still God, and God still loves you. Because sometimes that's all we need to hear to keep from being crushed. But when people are separated from God's people, when people are separated from that voice that they can come in and be an encourager, it just gets to be too much. But unfortunately, tragedy and pain are part of our story. Tragedy and pain are going to come in and are going to come and find us. And I've struggled with why. Why does God allow problematic circumstances to rise up? Why does God allow them to happen? Uh, C.S. Lewis, a, a great Christian author, wrote this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God allows various kinds of trials, not just because the world has fallen, not just because we're fighting the darkness, but because he knows that the absolute hardest time to fully rely on him is when everything is hunky-dory. When everything is just coming up roses for you and you're just cruising along, it's hard to remember that God is good and that you need him in your life. Because you start to think, oh, I did this. I accomplished this. I got that promotion because of my hard work and because of what I'm doing. I got that random lottery ticket because of what I'm doing because I went to that gas station, whatever. And you think, I'm doing well, I'm doing good, and you forget that even in those moments, especially in those moments that God is there guiding you and lifting you and pushing you. But as soon as something goes bad, as soon as there's pain and suffering, you're like, God, why? And it's odd, but I get it. I understand it. I, I've, I have lived a life that has had tragedy in it. And I wonder where I would be. Where would I be if I didn't come from a family that was broken? Where would my faith be if I didn't grow up surrounded by addiction and frustration and anger and mental illness? Where would I be in my faith if I didn't have to, through my formative years, struggle to get to church, to do my own work to make sure that I, I got there? Or who would I be if my family, as I was a small child, didn't move around so much that I went to 13 different schools between kindergarten and graduating high school? Who would I be as a person if all of that didn't happen? Who would I be as a person without the heartbreaks that I've experienced? Without the broken relationships? Without the loss of my father? Without the pain and suffering 
that has pushed me closer and closer to the God that I love. And I don't know. I have no idea. But what I do know is that while we would never ask for a problematic circumstance to come, while we're not going to seek it out, that if we can trust God when they come, that our faith will grow and be stronger because God can use them to build our trust in him. God can use them and take the problematic circumstances of our life and leverage them for his glory. Because it's not about us getting glory. It's all about him getting glory. So are we going to lean into him? When things get tough, are we going to allow him, like that old footsteps poem, pick us up and carry us? Or are we going to look to ourselves and fail and fall? Because, friends, I can promise you this. Problematic circumstances are not going to stop. They're not going to go away. We live in a fallen, dark world that seems to be getting darker every day. And if we're not out there willing to shine light, even on the darkest days, what are we going to do? Because here's the thing, you can't plan for problematic circumstances. You, You can't make them happen. You can only be ready for them and ready in a moment to trust God. I don't know what it was for you in your life. Maybe, maybe it was a diagnosis that you've gotten recently or, or even a diagnosis you got a long time ago that you're still struggling with and the doctors say there's nothing more we can do. You just have to live with it. And that shakes your faith. Maybe, maybe it's the death of someone that you loved so much that you don't know how you're going to go on without them and it, and it shakes your faith. Maybe you lost your job and you don't know how you're going to take care of your family or you had a relationship that you thought was perfect and good and now it is gone and broken and destroyed and your heart is aching and you don't know what to do and it's shaking your faith. None of these things are things that we're going to ask for. None of these things are things that we are going to look for But God can use it if you allow him to grow your faith. Because pain and suffering in this world are not an exception to the rule. They are part of our story. So when those things come, you got a choice. Allow that problematic circumstance to be a catalyst that sets your faith on fire. Or let it be the anti-catalyst that smothers you and crushes you. I know which one I feel like I should choose. And here's the difference. When you feel like God is doing something to you, it's crushing. But when you feel like God is doing something in you so that he can do something through you, that's when you'll get to the point that you can understand what James is saying. When in James 1, 2, he says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Pray with me.